You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. You're tuned into The Wire, one hour of current affairs and analysis starting now. Tinakoto Katoa, Ko Jessica Hopkins, Toku Ingoa, No Mai Hari Mai Kiti Wire, Mo Tenera Kiora, and welcome to The Wire for Rahina Monday. I'm your host, Jessica, and I'll be with you for the next hour. I'm also joined in the studio by producer Danielle for his last ever Wire show before he returns to Amsterdam. How are you feeling, Danielle? Yeah, good, good. Good? Yeah, unfortunately, ex- the last one. Unfortunately, the last one. You excited to return home, though? You're going to miss Aotearoa? I'm going to miss it. Yes, sure. we'll miss you too. If I Akineng, coming up on the show for our weekly interview, I speak to ex Karen Chor about school teachers striking this Thursday and the Auckland Council's budget proposal and filmmaker and co-founder of the Pan-Asian Screen Collective, Chuchi Kotari, about Michelle Yeoh's Best Actress nomination at the Academy Awards, as well as Asian representation in the film in the filmmaking industry. Danielle, what have you got planned for us today? Yeah, I spoke with Rita Shia about the influence of the Ukraine war on other human, humanitarian crises. And I also spoke with philosopher Neil Durant about his reasons not to be a Stoic and why we can better look at the philosophy of Nietzsche. Heaha of Ficado. I would love to hear your thoughts on any of these pieces. So get in touch, Tukupa Tuhimai. Text in on 5395. Or why am I Rane? Give us a call in the studio on 309-3879. Ka oa e wariwari i ahe ana koto ti fakarongo ki ene kōrero anohi pakihiri roki roki marunga iti pai tuku tuku o irangi poho mihari ki 95BFM irakati com. And you can catch all these stories and more by podcast on the 95BFM website. 95bfm.com It's time for our weekly catch-up with the ACT Party's Karen Chaw. For our weekly catch-up, I spoke to ACT MP Karen Chaw about school teachers deciding to stop work this Thursday to call for better pay and conditions and the Auckland Council's budget proposal which is currently out for public consultation. Here is that interview. Up to 50,000 teachers are expected to stop work this Thursday. And this will be the sector's biggest industrial action since 2019. So is ACT supportive of teachers in their decision? Look, um, teachers are really struggling at the moment and there's heaps of issues going on um, with with pay and conditions and, and what they're expected to be doing and do have sympathy for, for what they are asking for. I um, mean, with all the cost of living pressures that are going on at the moment and, and seeing that a starting teacher is only on about a dollar, I think it's a dollar 30 to 40 cents more than minimum wage, you can kind of understand their frustrations with, with the responsibilities that they have. Um, so ACT has, like... Um, it has policies around um, the education sector uh, that we feel would help teachers. Um, we've got our additional funding um, through what we call our Teacher Excellence Reward Fund, and that would put $250 million, um, back into um, rewarding teachers for, for their hard work and, and for their contribution to what they're giving our students. 
you have this teacher excellence reward fund. Given the current expectations of teachers who are dealing with inadequate resources and pay, wouldn't you say then they're already going above and beyond and that those adequate conditions should be a minimum standard? Yeah, I, I mean, this this is what happens when you have like a really rigid, centrally planned wage structure and you've got this cost of living crisis and governments trying to find um, money um, and into important things like this. But we've had we've had um, so many things happen that they're finding that they can't just go and raise teachers' wages to the height of inflation. And inflation is the biggest problem. Inflation is hitting everybody hard in their pockets where it hurts. And so we also have our policy with tax cuts um, to help people keep more of what they earn. And our tax cuts probably would equal almost the same amount of the difference that a minimum wage and a teacher, the difference of around $2,500 a year extra in the back of their pockets so that they can feed their families and put a roof over their head. How would ACT then address the problems with staffing numbers in schools? Because that's another one of the big issues that, that they want to address. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's lots of work to do in that area. Immigration's got some 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 part to play in there, um, making it easier for people uh, and quicker for people to come from other countries that have the the qualifications that we're needing here in New Zealand. Um, so immigration is an is, is another way of dealing with the the current staffing shortage. And at the moment, it's taking far too long. Um, for that process to get into this country. And, and we need to be allowing more people to come in with the skills that we're needing, and we need to be doing it quicker. Can you explain a little bit more about how your Teacher Excellence Reward Fund would work? The principals would oversee the Teaching Reward Fund, and they'd have discretion to provide awards to teachers who, who demonstrate excellence. Um, at the moment, there's, there'd be no... Prof- no formula imposed by the government. It would be, and it's not performance pay. It's a, it's a reward fund, so that principals can use it over and above the normal salaries, um, and, and just bring in the, bring in the, the resources that they actually need for their school. So a school may 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 need um, particular um, skills that they they can't afford to pay in that school area. So they'll be able to use this teachers reward fund to to get those those skilled teachers into their schools and so that the kids have the right um, person in front of them in the classroom. So one part that ACT mentioned I saw with this policy is bringing in those teachers with specific skills that the school might need. Mm. But your party's also said that teachers who are going the extra mile are currently being paid the same as those who just show up to eat their lunch. It seems like you're just talking about teachers that do their job, so then why not pay all teachers more? Yeah, I mean, and this is something that we have to look into further um, because, like I said, um, we do have sympathy um, with what's going on at the moment, especially with the cost of living crisis going on and the fact that um, we have had inflation above 7% um, for quite a while and also we're looking at at just basic cost of living rising well above what people can afford. And so this is a conversation moving forward and, and we'll have more to add later on. And I wanted to talk to you a bit about the Auckland Council budget. This is Mayor Wayne Brown's first budget, which needs to fill a $295 million budget hole. But it has received some criticism for certain public services that are set to be cut or significantly reduced in the funding they receive. So what does ACT think 
or what do you specifically, being someone from Auckland, think about their proposal? Yeah, so Auckland Council has some pretty tough decisions to make right now. Um, we've just had um, a major natural disaster causing flooding all around um, Auckland, so that's adding to the pressure of the council's budget. And they're going to have to make some fairly tough decisions around um, what is needed and what is not needed. Uh, at the moment, infrastructure is the biggest problem for Auckland, and there's no money to pay for, for, for the basic um, needs. And, and that money has to come from somewhere. So at the end of the day, ratepayers are going to have to pay this. And we want our councils to be frugal and to make sure that the money's going to the right places. And they're going to have to go through line by line and figure out um, what's important and what's, what can wait a little while. Because um, there's no more money and ratepayers aren't, aren't willing to, to do have a major rate increase. Uh, and we want to make sure that that money's being spent in the correct places. The trouble is, is that central government takes a whole lot of money from taxpayers and they reap the rewards of, of everything that gets done around the country through GST. So ACT has a policy that would share 50% of the GST that the government collects on building and construction with local councils to fund the infrastructure and help councils um, get a little bit more money to be able to provide those services for Auckland. And hopefully that will free up some money so they can spend it on the, the nice-to-haves. Auckland Central MP and Green MP Chloe Swarbrick has criticised Wayne Brown for cutting or proposing to cut two-thirds of a targeted rate funding stormwater and also water quality upgrades um, and also for environmental initiatives, two-thirds of those as well. So is this a concern to act um, about the council's sort of response to the devastation caused by extreme weather events like Cyclone Gabrielle. Yeah, and so that, that's why we've got this um, GST sharing policy, um, so that we are concentrating on the infrastructure and what's, go, what, what's happening when we are building and when we are putting in um, extra housing and when, when we are deciding um, where that infrastructure is needed. Um, because we need to be making sure that if, if we do have extreme weather events, that our infrastructure is up to scratch and can, can cope with that extra water that comes from the rain. Um, and so we have to find new ways of, of dealing with that. And part of that is central government um, sharing some of, of, of that money that is collected and putting it back into um, local government. The budget has also proposed cutting $2 million in funding to the Citizens Advice Bureau offices in Auckland, which would likely see its closure according to the Citizens Advice Bureau. They would also stop funding for homelessness initiatives. Is this sort of removal of support for vulnerable Aucklanders something that would concern you? Yes, Citizens Advice Bureau is a really good hub and a really good place where people can go to find out um, who can help them with their needs at the time, um, where they need to go, and also provide information in areas where people may not necessarily be able to get that elsewhere. And I do think it's time we have a good hard look at how um, a Citizens Advice Bureau is funded um, and whether it needs to have a little bit more of central report, uh, 
central government support um, and whether it should just be up to local governments to be supporting these services because their, their services actually um, deal with local issues but actually deal with a lot of other issues as well that um, take away the strain from um, from other other organisations where taxpayers' money is paying. As part of cuts to Auckland Transport, the budget is proposing to significantly re- reduce the number of bus trips per week. In a couple of articles I've seen are reporting 138 less bus trips per week. And we've seen in Auckland that buses are currently at total occupancy, particularly mm. during peak hours. So how would ACT better respond to the demand for public transport in Auckland? Yeah, so public transport in Auckland is an issue already. Um, I I know that um, we need to be making sure that public transport, if if it is being provided, and especially with this half-priced transport at the moment, um, that people are actually going to be using it. Um, People aren't finding it reliable. People aren't finding that they can actually get where they need to go in the time frame that they need to go. And buses have been cancelled left, right and centre. So, So there is a big issue with public transport, and that's something that really needs to be looked into. Um, and, I mean, that's a discussion that we have to have going forward. But I, I think the problem that the Auckland Council is having right now is that there's a whole lot of projects that they're having to pay for, um, there's a limited budget, and they're going to have to make some pretty tough decisions. And, at the, and, and if they do keep these um, extra... If they do keep the funding for, for some of these things, that ratepayers are going to end up having to pay for it. So we're... We need to make sure that whatever we're funding is funded in the right places. And that was ACT MP Karen Chaw. And you can have your say on the Auckland Council's proposed budget until March 28th. Visit akhaveyoursay.nz slash budget and check out the Auckland Council's website for more information about their proposal. And we'll be right back after this short break. Keep it on the B. That was our weekly catch-up with the ACT Party's Karen Chaw. It's music. Go to 95bfm.com for show podcasts. So it's a very odd time to be alive, as they say. The Wire. Why is it that the world's other humanitarian crises don't see the same responses as Ukraine? As beautiful as the response has been, why is there a discrepancy with people from other countries seeking refuge? I asked this question to Rita Shah, who is a senior lecturer at the University of Auckland. His research bridges several disciplines, including sociology, politics, international relations, and anthropology. Here's that interview. Uh, you know, as hard as it is for us to maybe um, call it out this way, I do think that there is what what. Um, Edward Said would call a kind of an Orientalist discourse going on. I think that we need to recognize that those who are seeking refuge from Ukraine are oftentimes seen as looking like quote unquote us. We've seen this mentioned explicitly by my, by media and by politicians. And there's a sense that they're different to other uh, refugee and asylum seeking groups. They're, they're seen as kind of less of a threat less of a difference from the kind of cultural values and beliefs that those of us in the West have. Uh, and I think it really symbolizes a, a, a core concern which I raise in my piece, which is 
that um, there is an endemic sense of, of, of racism and Orientalism in the way that we think about um, supporting some in need but not others. What do you mean with Orientalism? So Orientalism is this idea, um, it, was, it was kind of coined by Edward Said, um, who talks about this idea of a difference uh, that's positioned, uh, a categorization of difference, saying that there are those who prescribe to kind of Western norms, values, beliefs, and those who don't are placed into the other. And so effectively, in the Ukraine response, what we're seeing is that these are white, European, uh, Christian individuals who are seeking refuge. And so because of that, they're like us, while others who are seeking refuge within Europe or outside of Europe are of different religions, different skin colors, they're, they don't share the same uh, ideologies, beliefs that we do. How is the focus on Ukraine hurting other humanitarian responses? So there are three ways I think that it's doing so at the moment. Firstly, it's di diverting financial aid from other crises. And this is in part because our humanitarian system works on a kind of zero-sum basis, which is that if we give money to one place, we have to take money away from somewhere else. And it's just because it's not sufficiently funded. So, for example, if we look at the Ukraine right now, uh, nearly 80% of the monies that's been asked for under humanitarian appeals has been funded. But if we compare it to, say, Afghanistan, where that's only 38% funded, Yemen, 27%, and Sudan, 20%, um, it leads to real impacts on, in terms of whether people's needs are being met. So, for example, um, we are seeing right now in, in Eastern Africa and the Horn of Africa that nearly 18 million people could be in risk of starvation uh, because there's not sufficient humanitarian aid there. Also, it's diverting expertise away from uh, other crises. Uh, what happened when the Ukraine response started was that a lot, many humanitarian organizations called on their staff who were working in other places, who had significant experience to go and lead the Ukraine response. Uh, and that's basically draining knowledge, expertise uh, uh, that's, that's needed in uh, some of the other responses. And then lastly, I think it's diverting um, political attention and concern away from some of the other protracted crises. Um, we don't see politicians hopping on planes and going to other humanitarian crises these days or senior UN officials. Um, and that means that long-standing crises, such as those that we do see in, in large parts of Africa, or in Yemen, Afghanistan, Palestine, um, get ignored. They become forgotten. And, and I think that this is uh, a real concern. True, yeah. If we look, for example, how the EU handled the 2016 Syrian crisis, that was not comparable with how they handled Ukrainian refugees. They're spending more and more money to keep actually EU borders closed, spending a lot of money for other countries to stop irregular migration. In understanding that you also use the concepts racial erasure and global wide ignorance. Those yeah. are ideas by philosopher Charles Mills. Could you maybe explain how you use those ideas in analyzing this? Sure. Um, so basically, this concept of, of, of uh, racial erasure is this idea of the fact that we don't talk about race enough uh, in how we look at the response, in the fact that there is 
there are considerations of race uh, and and where people are coming from that are framing and shaping our response. And by not talking about race as a concept, uh, we hide behind the principles of humanitarianism, which are um, quote unquote impartiality uh, and 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 non discrimination, which sound good on paper, but then if we look at what happens in practice, those aren't, those aren't occurring at all. And as you highlighted, um, the EU response to refugees who are not from Ukraine, when we compare it to those who are from Ukraine, really foregrounds that very clearly. Yeah, and also humanitarian organizations could be vulnerable for that maybe there's maybe kind of structural racism within humanitarianism could you explain that i mean i think part of the 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 structural racism that we see in humanitarian organizations is a product of the the genesis of humanitarianism so humanitarianism some and many are now arguing is is kind of an ongoing legacy of colonialism so it's a way of political agendas being played out through how we deliver aid in the most acute crises in the world. And so we use our aid responses as a mechanism for securitization. And that securitization approach uh, is in fact driven by what I discussed earlier, this orientalist attitude of who we see as threats and who we see as safe to us. And unfortunately, and, and this is particularly true uh, after the after 9-11, we see that there is this belief that those who come from part predominantly the Muslim world are the threat. And so we need to protect ourselves. And, and yet we don't acknowledge that this is a phenomena that exists within the humanitarian architecture. And in part, that's a product of the fact that we need to look at who leads these humanitarian organizations. Who are those making decisions in these organizations? Oftentimes, They are people with um, privilege, uh, oftentimes white individuals who, who don't, who aren't able to see that racism or don't feel that they can call out that racism. And so, and in fact, that culture reproduces itself within the humanitarian architecture. So it's a combination of how money is flowing, who's working in there, and then whose voices are heard and not within the humanitarian architecture itself. I think all of these factors in culmination uh, lead to humanitarianism, in effect, um, creating structures of racism within it. Yeah. What would be needed to undo some of those biases? Is there a solution for that? Well, I think there's two, two important things that we need to start with. One is transparency. One is let's be transparent around the fact that humanitarianism is not a neutral affair. Uh, let's stop hiding behind uh, the banter of impartiality, non-discrimination, and let's recognize that humanitarian aid is not, uh, it does not uh, fall into either of those categories. And, and if we recognize that, first of all, and then we need to do something about it, and that's where the accountability comes in. And I think the accountability has to come in on many levels. One is, um, I think there needs to be accountability on the part of political leadership, um, to, to, on the part of us as citizens, to say, hey, why are you talking so much about Ukraine and not about some of these other crises in the world? 
Um, why is it that our government is not investing monies in other um, humanitarian responses to the same level that we've been able to invest in Ukraine? Uh, we need to stop treating it like a zero-sum game where if we give money to one country, we can't give money to another country. I think we also need to hold our media to account. Um, I think we need to ask our media, why is it that you feature stories about, um, and I've just noticed this in New Zealand today, uh, stories of Ukrainian uh, refugees here in New Zealand who are, who are on the verge of losing their visas and might be sent back to Ukraine. What about the hundreds or thousands of other uh, refugees, asylum seekers, migrants, um, who are also in a similar situation and are also going to be returning back to locations where their lives are under threat? Why aren't we reporting on that? Um, I think our aid architecture needs to change. We need to um, think about uh, disentangling our, our political agendas from how aid is being distributed, and that might require more pooled funding mechanisms which, where decisions aren't being made by individual governments. And then lastly, I think it's about whose voices are being heard in such responses. Are we, are we listening to you know, the, the political leaders, the, 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 those in charge of humanitarian organizations, or are we listening to those who are working on the ground and who, who can see the real need? Uh, I think we need to do a better job in humanitarianism uh, in subverting the, the, the idea that the expertise lies with those in the West. That was Rita Shah, senior lecturer in education at the University of Auckland. It's fucked. Yeah, it is. The Wire. Amidst the award season in the US, Michelle Yeoh has become the first Asian American woman to be nominated for the Best Actress Award at the Academy Awards in nearly 90 years. It has also been over two decades since there was a non-white Best Actress winner at the awards. I spoke to Associate Professor in Media and Communication at the University of Auckland, filmmaker and co-founder of the Pan-Asian Screen Collective, Shuchi Kotari, about Asian representation and lack of representation in the film industry in both overseas and Aotearoa contexts. Here is that interview. Can you tell me a little bit about why this is happening and what needs to be done to address this? Um, such a good point, you know, as you correctly said, it is a matter of extreme joy for all of us uh, to have, you know, Michelle Yeoh recognized finally. And um, we are talking at a time when the Oscar um, awards have not been um, revealed. So I hope that my celebration is not premature. Um, we are absolutely, you know, um, just rooting for her win. Um, for her win as, a, as an amazing actress, but also as a kind of a win for um, all the people who have in the past been ignored and not given um, this um, platform, and that goes way back to, um, you know, Meryl Oberon, who in 1935, uh, when was nominated for Dark Angel, could not even identify herself as Asian. So when we're talking about a long history of racism um, in the film industry, you know, we don't need more evidence um, than that. So, yeah, all, all power um, to Michelle. Yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, as I said, I'm talking to you before the awards have been announced. Um, and why do we see this, you ask? You know, why do we see this kind of lack of representation? Um, and, and more importantly, how do we address it? And I think it's important 
to, um, you know, recognize that, um, it, you know, it, if you look at the African-American experience, um, that tells us very clearly why um, Asians have not gotten their dues. Um, if you see the number of African-American um, actors and, um, in Hollywood historically, you know, from then to now, so many um, incredible people have not even gotten a look in. So um, systemic racism is not just a matter of now. You know, we've historically had systemic racism. In fact, people might say things are better now. And we perhaps are a little better now. But, you know, as you just said, um, when was the last time the Best Actor Award went to a person of color um, at the Academy? And how many years did you... That's almost 10, isn't it? Wasn't that 10 years ago? And in Western media and Western awards, we've started to see the recognition of Asian films like Everywhere, Everything Everywhere All at Once, um, and also other films recently like Crazy Rich Asians and Parasite were quite celebrated. But what has sort of the history of Asian American and also just Asian representation um, at these awards show been like in terms of other awards? So, um, so yes, you're right. You know, things are better, relatively, right, if you compare it to the past. Things have been better in the last, I would say, five years. And there was a, you know, post-MeToo movement in, in the West, and it, it had its own kind of trickle-down effects around the world. It started in the U.S., but, you know, post-MeToo, there was a um, way to kind of talk about redress and what had, you know, had not been looked at. And... Um, diversity, um, the hashtag Oscars also white, all this started to have a, some kind of traction in terms of media picking up these stories and interrogating in their own countries as well what the you know um, racial breakdown was in terms of people getting to be um, acknowledged, uh, whether it's through an award or whether it's through getting certain kinds of roles. You know, we've been talking about a time, you know, times when. Um, Asian roles have been performed by, you know, white um, um, you know, actors. And so it's, it's not, I often struggle when people think of this as deep history. This is, you know, as, as close as five years ago. So I think the celebration is fantastic. And I'm all for us thinking that there's some kind of, you know, wonderful moment. But I think we always have to keep... Um, the pressure on to expose these, um, you know, racial blind spots. Because um, wasn't it in 2004 that we had, you know, three um, Asian, you know, high-level kind of nominations of Oscars and three creatives, and then nothing till, you know, 2023. So every time something happens, we think, oh, we've turned the corner and some kind of floodgate is going to open where everything is going to be, you know, level playing field. And that's not the case. So I think um, we have to keep putting that, you know, pressure, keep, keep pressing the levers that get these inequities really noticed. Michelle, you in particular shared an article highlighting the disparity of the award she was nominated for in particular, um, but it was taken down for an alleged breach of Academy rules for mentioning competitors in any campaign efforts. Do rules like these, do you think, make it more difficult to kind of call out these injustices in the filmmaking industry? Um, absolutely, you know, absolutely. But uh, why why think of the rules of, you know, behind the academy, right, which is anyway, 
such a kind of a closed body and we also know has been historically dominated by, you know, white men. Um, even if we look at, you know, our own backyard, right, like things that are happening in New Zealand or uh, until New Zealand on air did not uh, start posting diversity, um, um, you know, data from 2016, nobody would have known that Asians get the least amount of public funding to make public, con- you know, uh, content for television um, or radio from New Zealand on air. Right? So unless somebody actually puts this data out there, um, it just seems all perception or complaint without, you know, meaning. Um, and, and revealing these statistics is really important because it gets people to kind of, you know, one, it gets people to think like, oh, my God, there is a problem. But it also gives um, activists and people who are doing this kind of advocacy work some real leverage. And how do we see these issues come up in Aotearoa's film industry with Asian um, Asian representation, um, both with awards and also just in general um, the opportunities given? I, I think the opportunities, um, again, you know, if you think about historically the first um, uh, film about, you know, Chinese presence in New Zealand, Illustrious Energy, and made by Leon Nabi, um, um, and then there was nothing for years and years, and then the first uh, kind of Asian um, above the line creative, you know, credit was when we did Apron Strings, and then Roseanne Liang's Wedding and Other Secrets, and then again nothing for decades. So it's not very different here, and yet our industry is small, but we can't hide behind that because you know. The Asian population is huge. The Pan-Asian Screen Collective has 840 members. 840 Asians in this country are part of the um, screen industry or want to be part of the screen industry. It's been junior, it's been a couple of years in, or maybe, you know, 10 years in, or people like myself, 25 years in. And how many opportunities do we exist to break these, um, you know, racial barriers? Very few. And again, you know, the last five years, we, we can see a lot more has happened in New Zealand for Asians. And um, both New Zealand on Airs, as I said, you know, their data has been very useful for us to lobby for more opportunities. Um, New Zealand Film Commission has now um, finally a diversity um, and inclusion department. So, you know, we can work with them. But it's constant effort, Jack. It's like you have to be, you know, like how they say your foot has to be on the pedal all the time. Otherwise, you just go right back, you know. Um, we had made an Asian uh, sketch comedy show in this country in 2008 on Time Time. The first Asian show in New Zealand was in 2008, Time Time. And um, we thought, oh, great, this is going to open doors for so many other Asians. And nothing happened till Friday Night Bites in 2018. That was a 10-year gap. And to say that, oh, there's just not enough people around is not the truth, you know. Um, that there, there are people, it's just that opportunities are very few. I mean, Michelle Yeoh is such a big name, you know. It, it, in a way, she doesn't need an Oscar to tell the world who she is. But it's also interesting that there are so many, um, you know, other people nominated this year, and people like Shantanu Das, who did All That Breeds, so... Um, you know, people who are the songwriter for um, 
Nacho Nacho, who's also, you know, um, nominated. There's so many, when, when we look at Asians, we are interested in, you know, Pan-Asia. We, we look across Asia. And I just wish everybody, all of them, uh, you know, gracious um, best wishes and luck. And we'd love to have um, a sense of, a, you know, finally the acknowledgement that uh, people are, you know, voting for talent and not for um, just, you know, their own biases, which seem often um, the way we say it goes. So fingers crossed. And um, I'll be um, pouring the champagne, but waiting to sip it to actually see what's happening. That was filmmaker and professor of media and communications at the University of Auckland, Shuchi Kotari, about Asian representation and lack of representation in the film industry. And we'll be right back after this short break. Next up is For My Ladies from Yusuf Davies featuring Charlie Stacey and Rocco Palladino. Keep it on the bay.
Okay, I got up at 5 a.m. I waxed on my board. I waxed off my board. Did you watch Point Break? Yes. I'm ready to go surfing, bruh. Let me come surfing with mm, you. I don't know. Oh. oh, damn. Actually, look at that. Solid zero on the West Coast. Surf's off, Soz. The 95 BFM Surf Report. All the surf, all the time. Weekdays on Breakfast and Drive. Thanks to Pro Gear Photographic. Welcome back. You're listening to The Wire on 95BFM. For an ancient philosophy, Stoicism is doing quite good in our times. On Instagram, there's an, an abundance of Stoic quotes. For example, the more we value things outside our control, the less control we have. Or we suffer more in imagination than in reality. I spoke with Neil Durant about his article, article on why we shouldn't be Stoic, but should maybe listen to philosopher Nietzsche instead. I started off by asking him, what is Stoicism actually? I mean, Stoicism is an ancient philosophy from, um, from Greece. It had a, life of, a long life in Greece, so there are different um, versions of Stoicism. But I think one of the features of Stoicism, along with other um, schools of ancient Greek philosophy, is that it sees itself as a way of life, as a practical guide to living, um, not as some esoteric theoretical thing. So if you were Stoic, uh, you sort of took on board a certain way of living. Uh, and that living includes some of the um, sort of features of, of Greek philosophy, like um, what they call uh, ataraxia, which is this idea of not getting overwhelmed by strong emotions and having a sense of equanimity and sort of stability in your inner life. And um, I think one of the most central features of Stoicism related to that is what they call the dichotomy of control. So just being aware in Stoicism, being aware of what you do and don't control and their theory was that you control uh, yourself or what's in your own mind you can't control anything in the world out there so the the key to ataraxia or to having equanimity or stability in your inner life was to accept that a distinction between what you can control and what you can't control yeah you state that stoicism is quite popular right now mm. Why, why do you think that is? Why is it doing so good, this strength of philosophy? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, there, there are some academics like Donald Robertson who have started this kind of revival of modern Stoicism in the academic world. But I actually think the popularity of Stoicism as a sort of contemporary way of thinking, I think uh, Ryan Holiday has, has a lot to do with that. So he's a, a person who has really done a lot of work online to promote uh, Stoicism. He's not an academic philosopher. He comes from a marketing background. I think he's, he worked for American Apparel or something like that. So he's applied all of those marketing techniques to um, to bring Stoicism to a very wide audience, which is, I think, very welcome that philosophy comes to a wide audience. Um, I think he's done a lot for bringing Stoicism to that audience. Then there are others. I mean, I think the whole um, Instagram, inspo quotes, philosophy quotes kind of phenomenon um, has kind of added to that. So um, Stoicism, you know, there are a thousand different accounts you can find on Twitter and Instagram of just quoting Stoic, uh, you know, sort of memorable quotes. So I think all of those phenomena come together um, to make Stoicism popular. But I also think there's something in the, the contemporary, um, in the ether, so to speak, where people are looking for guidance on how to live. Uh, I think our societies are kind of post-Christian, post-Judeo-Christian. And what Nietzsche talked about is the death of God being like the end of a framework, a very clear, reliable framework for thinking about how to live. Once that's gone, people are looking for 
guidance or some sort of authority on the best way to live their lives. And so you combine all of that, and I think you can see stoicism as some clear guidance on how to live, and people are hungry for that. Yeah, you're also a bit critical on stoicism. Why do you think we shouldn't all be diehard stoic? Because, I mean, the, the article that I wrote for the conversation, which is where a lot of this has come from, you know, I was looking at what people, I was reading what people are writing about um, stoicism, so the modern stoic interpretations of ancient stoicism. And what you find there is that people identify problems with stoicism, but they just kind of gloss over them and go, oh, well, I can see that that's a problem, but it's not something I'm going to address. And this kind of drive to have guidance in life overtakes a kind of rational judgment about what Stoicism offers. So I got really frustrated with that. And, um, you know, and I've read the Stoics myself, and I find reading the Stoics really frustrating because at key points, just when you're sort of wondering how it all comes together, they will often rely on concepts that I don't accept, like, a concept of God, for example, if you read Epictetus, you know, you sort of read, like, yep, 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 and then you go, oh, that's a problem, and his solution is, quote-unquote, God, and for me, that's not an adequate solution, so I'm like, well, actually, I think, isn't, there's some value in it being an ancient philosophy, but there's also disvalue in it being an ancient philosophy, <laughs> because the worldview, the understanding of the way the world works, the understanding of human beings and their place in the universe is very, very different to the sort of post-scientific or current scientific understanding of that. And so, you know, there are things that we can actually say, yep, I'm glad I've got that insight from an ancient person, but also they are an ancient person and their understanding of the world is not the same as mine. And I would reject a number of things that are proposed. So I guess I get kind of frustrated by reading the Stokes as if it was another Bible, like some ultimate authority that we absolutely have to believe because it's ancient. I said, no, no, my judgment about things, what I think about things, is what I have to rely on. And if I disagree with something I read in the Stoics, <clears throat> I'll disagree. Um, and so that's kind of where that article and the idea of critiquing Stoicism came from, um, that, you know, we are free to make our own judgments about what the Stoics have to say. And if you disagree, as I do, with many of the Stoic um, sort of positions on things, well, then I'm, I'm free to say so and to develop my own understanding of how to live. Yeah, we, we take a too religious approach. For yeah, exactly. We take a kind of, um, we take it as an absolute authority and sort of this idea that it, it must be right because it's come from, ooh, Marcus Aurelius. Or, you know, uh, but, you know, Marcus Aurelius was a guy. He had lots of good things, lots of bad things. Um, and same with all of these, these people. They're just people trying to figure out things out. And um, I think they'll get some things wrong along the way. And Nietzsche is a better approach, you think? Could you explain that? Yeah, I mean, look, I've been um, reading Nietzsche uh, for a long time. Um, Nietzsche's had a very significant impact on my life. Yeah, you know, I, I used to be um, an ordained uh, priest in the Anglican Church. Um, and reading Nietzsche, reading Albert Camus, reading Jean-Paul Sartre, these guys changed my mind. And, you know, I had to change. I lost my faith. I lost my job. I lost everything because of reading Nietzsche and others and thinking, well, actually, I think these guys are right. Um, I agree with them. And that had a very profound impact on my life. So I, I just think Nietzsche is um, one of those under-recognized geniuses who, I mean, there's a lot of things wrong with Nietzsche, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but for me, when he's right, he's devastatingly right. And um, so I really love 
I love his philosophy. I think uh, I'm very keen to take his philosophy to a wide audience the way that Holiday has done with the Stoics. What way is Nietzsche right about Stoicism? Yeah, I mean, I think Nietzsche's, Nietzsche has this kind of very firmly grounded pragmatism about what human beings are. So he's for Nietzsche, there's no ought. There's no like, you shouldn't feel that way or you shouldn't do that or you ought to be different to what you are. Nature is just like, you are what you are. And you know, human beings, uh, there's a lot of good things about being human, um, love and compassion and kindness and care for others. There's a lot of other parts of being human. There's there's hatred, there's greed, there's contempt, there's disgust, there's, and nature just says, accepts all of it. He just kind of goes, this is what it's like to be human and have feeling really strong emotions like love or hatred or like, respect or contempt or like attraction and disgust these things are just part of life and so for him to kind of try to to say to somebody oh you shouldn't feel that way don't be thrown off your internal equanimity by strong emotions for him that's just nonsense i mean that is what it's like to be human so instead of saying it shouldn't be that way you should be different you should take control he says well just find a way to ride those waves, find a way to make it productive and useful in your life. It's going to be there one way or the other. So instead of saying you shouldn't have it, just make use of it. And for me, that's a much more kind of realistic and it's very liberating kind of approach to say, well, whatever you experience is fine. We just have to figure out how to make it a benefit to yourself and to other people. And for me, I just really like that approach. I think it's really different um, to what you, you generally find in the world of ethics. That was Neil Durant, adjunct fellow in the philosophy department at McGuire University with a research interest in applied ethics, specializing in Nietzsche's studies. You can also go to his Instagram at Neil Durant, where he is using quotes of Nietzsche to reflect on concepts as friendship, love and joy. That was The Wire. Ko ira te hotaka katoa mō tinewiki ne te mihi ki a koutou katoa i kōrero mai ki o mō tinera. That's a wrap on the Monday Wire. Thanks to everyone who spoke with us today. Act MP Karen Chaw, filmmaker and co-founder of the Pan-Asian Screen Collective, Shuchi Kotari, adjunct fellow in the philosophy department at Macquarie University, Neil Durant, and senior lecturer in education at the University of Auckland, Ritesh Shah. Nira hoki, hoki timihi, kia koto e whakarongo ana. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to 95BFM. Next up is the one to four with Penny. That was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.